Good morning, brothers and sisters. It is a joy to be able to use technology to teach God's Word with you. While this is a temporary format in our uncertain times, we trust God's strange providence in the midst of it. It is a gift of God to teach us to trust Him, to remind us of the truth of His Word, Psalm 90, that we are to number our days. In these difficult days, in the midst of this unusual season that God has brought us to, let us learn to long for the gathering of God's people. Let us use this season to read God's Word, to pray. Brothers and sisters, let me just encourage you that if you've been affected by the shutdown due to the coronavirus, learn to trust God. Learn to depend on Him. Seek Him in the midst of this. Now to be clear, this format is not a sermon. I don't in any way hope to preach a sermon to you digitally, but rather to open God's Word, to show you the point of the passage, and to really help you read God's Word better as a family, as individuals, and to apply it to our lives together. So we encourage you to read the passage if you haven't already. You can pause me and come back after you've read it. And also, I just encourage you to have your Bibles open as we read through God's Word together. This morning we're going to consider Genesis eleven twenty-seven through the end of chapter 14. In this, God promises to restore His kingdom on earth through a particular people. Through Abraham and his descendants, God will make His kingdom on earth and bless all the nations. Our story finds its ultimate fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. It gives significance to Jesus' words and ministry. For example, when Jesus began His earthly ministry, He proclaimed in Mark 1.15 that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom of God was at hand because the king had come. Well, the purpose of our study this morning is really just to encourage us to trust the promises of God regardless of our circumstances. And how fitting in the midst of our uncertain days that God would choose for us to study this particular passage. So let me encourage you now to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 11. Look down there to verse 27. Follow along as I make some comments, give some general reflections, and some application to our passage. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Iscah. Now Sarah was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarah his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they had come to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years. And Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go to your country, 
go from your country and your kindred, from your father's house, to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Father, we pray this morning that you would use your word to affect change in our lives. May we see your great promises in this passage, and may we trust in your word alone. Give us hope, we pray, through Christ Jesus. Amen. Well, we see as we begin our study this morning that this begins a new section in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapters 1 through 11 are really a panoramic view of all of creation. As God recounts how He created the world, how He created man in His image, and how man rebelled against God. Really from chapters 3 to chapter 11, we've just seen humanity spiraling out of control and rebellion against God. Even the great flood was unable to sort of curb man's appetite and a satious desire to rebel against God. Well, as the camera sort of pans and looks at all of creation, all of humanity, the camera now zooms in and focuses to one particular person, to one particular man, who of all of those in creation, God would choose to bring about His blessings to the nations. Through Abram, God would choose to save the world through His descendant. We see in the passage, as you heard me read, some tension that sort of was created in the, in the text. We see in chapter 12, verses 1-3, through 3, the promise that God was going to make Abram a great nation. That he would have many descendants. And uh, later in Genesis, he'll say that they will number the sand on the seashore or the stars in the sky. They'll be plentiful, multiplying. We see some tension in the text here. And if you look at chapter 11 and verse 30, we're told that Sarai, Abram's wife, was barren, that she had no children. How will God fulfill his promise to Abraham to make him a great nation? If his wife is barren. Now, to be clear, you, you've heard me use two names, Abram and Abraham, uh, Sarah and Sarai. Uh, God will later in Genesis change their names, and so uh, you, I'll use them interchangeably, not to confuse anyone. We see in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, that God promises that he will make Abram a great nation. As you think about this story that we're going to consider this morning in four scenes, so we see sort of scene one, God calling Abram to leave his family and to go to the promised land, this land that he will give to the nation of Israel. And then the scene uh, sort of changes from Canaan to Abram and his wife in Egypt. And then from there, the scene sort of shifts back up to Israel, the, the, this land of Canaan that God will eventually give to them, and then concludes in sort of a fourth scene in chapter 14, where Abram goes to battle to save his nephew Lot. So let's just consider these sort of four scenes this morning. We're to, we see very early on in the passage here that God commands uh, Abram to leave his family and to go to a distant land far from where his family had settled. 
God commands him to go, to leave. Now, this was not an easy task. It's not like us to sort of pick up our families and just sort of move to anywhere we would like to. Uh, Generally, we're more upwardly mobile than many in the history of humanity. This was a a big ask. As we'll see in the story later, you'll see that Abram had a large family. He had a lot of workers that helped tend his flock and his father's sheep, over 300 people. This wasn't uh, something that he could do easily. But Abraham demonstrates tremendous trust in the Lord to obey his command. We just sort of uh, focus in on verses 1 through 3. We see a number of things here I just want to make comment on. First, we see in God's promise the sort of purpose that God had for Abram. That is, through Abram, uh, he would bless the world. Abram would be the mediator of the covenant between God and the Hebrew people. Through Abram, God would bless the world. Paul says in Galatians 3.16 that through one of Abram's children that is, Jesus Christ, God fulfills His promise to Abram. That God is the promise-keeping God. That through this promise, God restores His kingdom on earth. That is, through Jesus Christ, as I've already indicated earlier. We see is that if you look, just look forward to verse 11, that so Abram went as the Lord had told him. Abram obeyed the Lord. He left behind the security of family and land to obey the Lord's command. He demonstrated tremendous faith in the Lord to leave behind all of that security to follow Him. As we see as Abram begins to make his way to Canaan, to the the sort of land that God is going to give to them, uh, nowhere do we see a fulfillment of that promise until much later. Uh, That is in the book of Exodus. We see that God uh, begins to uh, unfold that. Not until the book of Joshua, many years later, hundreds of years later, would God fulfill the promise to bring the nation of Israel into the promised land. Well, as Abram takes a sort of tour, if you will, of the land, we see in verse 6 that he goes to a place called Shechem. Uh, This is the really northern area of what would become the nation of Israel. Abram, as he goes on this tour, just continues to attribute all of this to the Lord. He's seeing before his eyes God's promises fulfilled. There at the end of verse 9, we see a reference to this area, this region called the Negeb. The word, the Hebrew word Negeb means south. Like when we reference the south in America, you know, I'm from the south or uh, those southern people, it's a reference to the southern states. So when an Israelite said that he was from the Negev, he was saying that he's from the southern territory of Israel. Well, as the scene shifts to Abram, we're told that Abram and his wife, because of a famine in the land, look there at verse 10, that Abram begins to journey onward out of the promised land down to Egypt, where he'll find what he hopes is safety and security. It's really meant to be a literary tension for us as we are introduced to the story. A conflict, if you will. Remember, God had promised Abraham that he would make him a great nation. That promise has yet to be fulfilled. And so there's a sense of a literary tension in the text. There is famine in the land. Meaning that Abraham and his wife cannot get the necessities that they, they need. What will happen to them? Will they starve to death and die? Will God's promises fail? As Abram comes to Egypt, he begins to worry. 
begins to struggle with the truth of what will happen. So he concocts sort of a half-truth. He says, look, I know that my wife is beautiful and they're going to see my wife and they're going to take my wife and they're going to kill me. And so him and Sarai come up with a plan to disguise her as his sister. Now, that's sort of a half-truth. She is a relative of his. But he demonstrates tremendous lack of faith. He doubts God's promise of protection that God had promised that anyone who would do him harm, remember, look back up to verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. We see Abram is still learning to trust the Lord's promise in all of its fullness. Abram seeks to follow his own way. We'll see later in the text to follow, in the stories to follow, that Abram will do this again, and even his own children will seek to live this sort of half-trust in the Lord. But yet, in the midst of Abram's lack of faith, the Lord fulfills His promise. Look there in verse 17, we're told that the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. The Lord fulfills His promise to protect Abram and his wife, even though they lack faith. God will not allow anything to stop His plan. This scene also sort of foreshadows that God will inflict a plagues on another Pharaoh during the Exodus. The same people who are reading this text had just seen before their eyes God's infliction upon the nation of Egypt. Brothers and sisters, how do you often turn to other means rather than trusting in the promises of God? Are you like Abraham in this way, lacking faith that God will fulfill His Word? You see, a lack of faith is a lack of dependence on God's Word. Brothers and sisters, let us pray that we would trust that God's Word is true and trustworthy. Well, as this scene closes out and we shift to chapter 13, we see sort of an opening of a new scene that Abram leaves Egypt and settles in the land of Canaan. In verse 1 of chapter 13, we are told that Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him, into the Negev, into that southern region. Moses uses here sort of intentional language to prefigure the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt. Just as, the, just as their patriarch, Abraham, was, went up from Egypt, so they were delivered from Egypt to dwell in the promised land. Well, this next narrative episode record, records for us how Abram and Lot settled in the land of Canaan. Abram, being a righteous man, demonstrates tremendous trust in the Lord in giving Lot the first choice of the land. We're told that Lot goes and settles into the Jordanian Valley, a a valley lush because of the river that flowed through it. Here we see Abram again demonstrating faith. He's sort of learning to trust the Lord as he allows Lot to have the better land. God continues to bless Abram as we're told that he had great possessions. This scene not only gives us an understanding of what is going on with Abram and Lot, but these events tell us also really what is to come. If you look there in verse 13, we're told that Lot settles near Sodom and Gomorrah. In the chapters to follow, we will see that not only does he settle there, but he also moves in, begins to act like those in the city. The scene sets up where God will destroy the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, where Abram rescues Lot. Really a picture of what the Lord will do through the seed of Abram. 
the seed of Abram, Jesus Christ, the one who mediates, uh, the one who is the mediator who saves his people from God's wrath. Again, we'll see that in the scene to follow. If you look there at verse 17, we're told that Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Again, these are not just sort of passing comments, but rather we see that throughout his journey, throughout the sort of tour as he takes up the land, as he sees all that God is going to do, and the sort of promises that God reassures him in verses 14 through 18, that God will fulfill his word. And Abram trusts in the Lord. He is, if you will, being sanctified. He's growing to learn to love the Lord with all his heart, soul, and mind. We come to then our final scene, the fourth scene, really verses 1 through 24 of chapter 14, the whole chapter sort of being a scene where Abram, where we're told that Abram rescues Lot from captivity. Again, the, the same promise remains that there's these, this promise that God has made that he will make Abram a great nation. As you read through chapter 14, you were confronted with these sort of great, mighty, powerful kings. These kingdoms that are described in in such greatness compared to Abram's smallness. We're not told that Abram has sort of some great, mighty army, that he's some warrior king, or that he is going to take the promised land by force. These kingdoms are described as great and awesome. And Abram and Lot are no match to these great lords. The tension is created for us. Will God's promise continue even in the midst of greatness and uncontrollable forces? Abram and Lot could have easily been swept away by these mighty kings. Who would stop them? They seem to be just doing what they want. Sort of a glimpse of the former times. The mighty men were in power. As the story unfolds in this sort of fourth scene in chapter 14, we are told that these kings go and take captive Lot. Verse 12, they also took Lot, the son of Abram, brother, who was dwelling in Sodom in all his positions, and they went their way. What will become of Lot? Lot's fate is really connected to Abram's fate. If Lot can be taken captive, even Abram, perhaps he's next. Perhaps this is the end of the story. But where Abram, while in Egypt, trusted in his own plans to save himself, we're told in this particular scene that Abram trusts in the Lord's power to deliver. He doesn't turn to these other more powerful lords for help and protection, but to the Lord of lords, the King of kings. We're told that Abram sweeps in and rescues Lot from these wicked kings, uh, these evil ones, as the text says. And we're introduced to Melchizedek. Look there in verse 18. Really little comment is given about this particular king, but Scripture, particularly the book of Hebrews, makes much about him. We don't have time this morning to really look at that, but let me encourage you to to consider Melchizedek in the book of Hebrews. We're told there in verse 18 that Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Salem was the 
territory or the region that would become Jerusalem later in the nation of Israel. It's no coincidence that this king is referenced to be the king of Salem. He blesses Abram, and Abram blesses him by giving him a tithe or an offering to the Lord. The scene is meant to depict Abram as giving the Lord credit or glory for delivering him and Lot from the enemy. God's promises would be fulfilled. No mighty king or kingdom would stop God's promises. He will complete all that He promised in chapter 12, verses 1-3. through He will raise up through Abram and make him into a great nation. This again is what we see uh, Abram appeal to in verse 22 of chapter 14. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. When in Egypt, Abram took to himself. In this scene, we see a man of faith, one who trusts in the Lord. Brothers and sisters, this passage is meant to teach us to trust in the promises of God. Does this trust show up in the way you think, in the way you reason, the way you act? Do your actions deny your trust in the Lord, or do they confirm them? God keeps His promises. Every promise that He made to Abram, He kept in Jesus Christ. As I alluded to earlier in Galatians chapter 3, God promised and God fulfilled His promises in Christ. As Christians, we trust that God's Word is true and trustworthy, that we can depend upon it. In this season of tremendous uncertainty, we can know that God is faithful to fulfill His promises. Brothers and sisters, use this unusual season to meditate on the promises of God in Scripture. See how they are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. See the promises that Jesus made and how He'll make those promises complete when He comes again. Well, as many of you know, there's not been many sporting events going on in fact, all sporting events across the world have been stopped. And so like any good sports enthusiast, I've turned to watching old baseball games to pass my time. Yesterday afternoon, I got the, just a tremendous uh, time to sit back and to watch Game 6 of the 2011 World Series, where the Cardinals, the St. Louis Cardinals, took on the Texas Rangers. Many sports historians say that this World Series game will go down as one of the greatest games ever in the history of baseball. As I sat and watched that game yesterday, remembering having watched it live 10 years ago, I watched it with a different anticipation. You see, I knew what was coming. I knew how it would end. But that didn't change my excitement. It didn't change the way I watched it, but in many ways it did. You see, as the game went on, as it got closer to the end, and it looked as if the Cardinals were going to lose, they were down two uh, runs in the bottom of the eighth. They came back and scored and tied the game in the bottom of the eighth to have that lead then wiped away in the ninth, the top of the ninth, when the Texas Rangers again went on top by two runs. But then things changed again in the bottom of the ninth. The Cardinals tied the game again, tied 7-7, going into extra innings. All to see that wiped away in the top of the 10th as the Texas Rangers again went ahead 
As I sat there and watched that, knowing what was coming when David Freeze would, would hit the game-winning home run to send it to Game 7, where the Cardinals would eventually win the World Series. As I sat there and watching that, I paused it so that I could go get a snack and use the restroom. Now, frankly, I wouldn't have done that during the live. I wouldn't have left. I had my eyes glued to the screen, waiting with anticipation to see what would happen. You see, when I watched it yesterday, it was completely different. I already knew the end. I wasn't worried. I wasn't concerned. I knew how the end would be. Brothers and sisters, we know how things will end. We know that God has kept His promises in Christ. That every promise that Christ has made to us will come to completion. Brothers and sisters, faith is trusting in these promises of God. Depending our souls that what God said is true and trustworthy. Brothers, sisters, trust in the Lord in the midst of uncertainty. Because the end is already written. We know that Jesus wins. That Christ will come and rescue His church. And so we, with hearts uplifted, with hopeful minds and hopeful lives, we pray, come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I pray that You would use our time in Your Word today. I pray that it would benefit our souls. Help us, Lord, in the days ahead to trust in Your promises. It is for Your glory and our eternal good that we pray in Christ's name. Amen.